Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm pleased to have on as our guest, Elise Resch. Elise is a nutrition therapist in private practice in Beverly Hills. She has 38 years of experience specializing in eating disorders, intuitive eating, and health at every size. She is a co-author of Intuitive Eating, now in its fourth edition, and the Intuitive Eating Workbook, and the author of the Intuitive Eating Workbook for Teens, and the Intuitive Eating Journal, Trust Your Inner Voice, Not Diet Culture. She's also a chapter contributor to the Handbook of Positive Body Image and Embodiment and has published journal articles, print articles, and blog posts. She does regular speaking engagements, podcasts, and extensive media interviews. She is nationally known for her work in helping patients break free from diet culture through the intuitive eating process. Her philosophy embraces the goal of developing body positivity with the belief that all bodies deserve dignity and reconnecting with one's internal wisdom about eating. She supervises and trains health professionals is a certified eating disordered registered dietitian and supervisor, a fellow of the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals, and a fellow of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Welcome, Elise. Hello, Elise. Welcome to Mind Stories. So glad to have you on today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Yeah, I've I've really been excited about this conversation because I know your book, the fourth edition of Intuitive Eating, just came out last month. And I think the topic of intuitive eating is something that our listeners would be very interested in hearing about and learning more about. Well, that's great. <laughs> I love talking yeah. about it. my favorite subject. <laughs> I'm sure you are you're an expert in this subject. So maybe we can just begin quite simply by having you just describe what intuitive eating is. And that's actually my favorite question of my favorite subject because there are so many myths and misconceptions about what intuitive eating is. So it's basically learning how to trust that inner wisdom that the majority of babies are born with. We're, you know, most of us are born with all of this ability to tune into our instinctual hunger and fullness and ultimately what foods we like and what foods we don't like and how our bodies feel. So the goal of intuitive eating is to learn how to reconnect because so many people have been disconnected from all of that due to this, what I've lately been calling a cult, diet culture, which pulls people away from uh, trusting their own bodies. It's a weight-inclusive anti-diet approach. And then the definition that I like the best is that it's a dynamic interplay of instinct, emotion, and thought. I just mentioned instinct. And what that comes from is the triune brain, the three parts of our brain that have been developed over eons. The most primitive part of the brain is the reptilian brain, and that came about when the dinosaurs were there. That's pure instinct to survive. So those dinosaurs didn't have feelings. They didn't have thoughts. They just simply went after little dinosaurs or herbs or whatever they were eating to uh, keep themselves alive. And then as mammals came about, another level of brain functioning developed, and that's called the mammalian brain or the limbic brain. And it's the seat of emotions and social behaviors. And that sits right on top of that 
instinctual matrix, which is kind of at the brainstem, right at the top of the brainstem, and then the limbic brain is on top of that. And then what differentiates us from other animals, us humans, is the human brain, the neocortex. And this is the place where we have cognition, where we are able to think. So it's interesting. A lot of people recognize that their pets have emotions. You know, they go away and their you know, cat or dog is angry at them and you know, acts out. But pets don't have the ability to think. And, and we do. And so what has that, that thinking part is so important in looking at what intuitive eating is, because we get the instinct to eat, as I said, and, and know what we like and don't like. However, emotions can affect our instincts. And so sometimes if we're overly anxious, we'll, the appetite will go away. You know, if you're in kind of a high cortisol mode, you, you've lost touch with appetite or very stressed. Sometimes people want more food. So we use that cognitive part of the brain, the neocortex, to be able to monitor and nourish and nurture our emotions and help us make decisions for ourselves. They're going to work for us. So there you have it. Long definition. So as you were talking about that, it made me wonder, okay, are other animals that are maybe less sophisticated or have less Uh developed brain, Uh are they better at intuitive eating? It depends. If they're rescue animals that have been traumatized and out in the wild with food insecurity and no protection, they actually may be directed by their emotions. But I think that animals that are taken care of very well, just the way babies that are taken care of well and are attended to are very, very intuitive in their eating. So it's not a yes or no answer. Right. So it's kind of this idea that emotions and thoughts sometimes wreak havoc on, you know, the purity of an intuitive eating experience. Right. It can't simply be instinctual because of the emotions that affect instincts. And I had mentioned myths that are going around about intuitive eating and all kinds of other myths, you know, so much of the orthorexic type of thoughts that are out there telling people that certain foods are good foods and will help you live forever and other foods are going to kill you tomorrow or you know there's a lot of thinking that has to be done to confront some of the cognitive distortions some of these thoughts and myths that aren't true so mm-hmm. thinking's a very important part of it but it's not just thought see in diet culture everything is taken away from that inner wisdom because any kind of diet is external and it informs the dieter what to eat, when to eat, how much to eat. But you see, that has nothing to do with what the, the individual truly knows instinctually inside and what the individual likes and doesn't like. And so it's a very internal process, intuitive eating and getting, getting people to break through some of the diet culture distortions so that they can really start trusting themselves. So it's interesting when people think about seeing a nutritionist, maybe they have different ideas of what that might mean. So how do you describe maybe the difference between a nutritionist who specializes and focuses primarily on intuitive eating versus a different type of nutritionist? A more traditional. Yeah. So I'm a registered dietitian, nutritionist. I've been in private practice for 38 years. And all those years ago when I was in training, we learned a very traditional approach. It was tell people about what's good nutrition, you know, to give them a meal plan to, so that they're having balanced meals. And that was that. And there are a number of dietitians out there that continue to do that. And they 
often, and I won't say always, but they often have weight bias. And their goal is to help people lose weight, whether they're coming in for some disease that has been found or for many reasons. So they're hoping to kind of control the patient's eating so that the patient can be healthier, quote unquote, <laughs> usually mentally not so healthy when they're trying to you know, follow some meal plan or diet, and very externalized, sometimes authoritarian-wise, so that they're, they're the expert and they're telling the person what to do. But an intuitive eating counselor, someone who's trained in intuitive eating, understands that the client has all the wisdom inside. And the goal is, is to help them look within, become very present when they're eating so that they can really notice whether food is satisfying to them, because satisfaction is a true driving force of intuitive eating, helping them notice that foods are more delicious if they start eating when they're comfortably hungry versus having no hunger. I'll often ask a client, so tell me, would you eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich just before you're, well, it used to be <laughs> going to your favorite restaurant during COVID times when I'm going to restaurants, but in any case, before you're about to eat some wonderful meal, would you eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich moments before? And inevitably, people say, well, no, of course not. They look at me like, what's wrong with you, Elise? Of course, I wouldn't do that. And I'll say, why? And they say, well, it wouldn't be very enjoyable. So intuitively, instinctually, they know that food is going to be more satisfying and taste better if they're moderately hungry. And the converse, if you're in what is called primal hunger, where you're truly in survival mode, where that survival part of the brain is sending out chemicals to drive you to get as many calories and carbohydrates in as you can so the brain can work and the body can work can't really enjoy food that way either because you're on kind of an automatic mode of just kind of putting it in as much fast as you can just to survive. So when satisfaction, when we look through a lens of satisfaction, it actually helps people figure out what the best hunger level is for eating, how important it is to stay present so that they can notice the satisfaction, notice when they're starting to get full, notice that maybe food doesn't taste quite as good after they're comfortably full. Notice when food is there for comfort and emotion and helping people find really effective coping mechanisms. Food absolutely can be there for comfort and no one should ever feel bad about needing comfort from food. It's just a matter of are you staying present? Are you really enjoying it? Are you getting that emotion of comfort? And what other coping mechanisms can you find that will also help you through whatever the you know, stress is at the moment? Got it. So in terms of under, some, an individual developing understanding of their hunger cues, mm -hmm. how do you do that? How do you, do you, I mean, I'm sure that's the main part of your process. Well, interestingly, it's not the first thing I work with because I think it's very hard to focus on hunger when you've still got perhaps ideas about diets in your head or you're thinking that intuitive eating is just the hunger fullness diet and which it isn't that's a myth and you know you've got to eat only at the right hunger level or stop at the right fullness level so that's why i do begin with satisfaction because in that way people can focus on how delicious and satisfying their meals are without a rejection of that idea because the majority of people are going to want to get more satisfaction. So as I was just saying, they'll recognize that unless they have some hunger, they're not going to be very satisfied. So it means tuning into when they're starting to feel those hunger signals. Now, I will say that 
so many people, especially people who've had disordered eating for a long time or a serious eating disorder, really aren't in tune with hunger and fullness. And in that case, I just, well, I have a master of science degree in nutrition, so I do like to teach some science to my clients. And I'll let them know that our blood sugar levels, and I explain to them what blood sugar is, you know, it's really what keeps our bodies working, but especially uh, that uh, glucose in our bloodstream is the only thing that gets into the brain to give the energy to the brain to work. In any case, the blood sugar tends to drop after somewhere between three and maybe five hours for most people. For me, it's about three hours. Some people say four, but somewhere around that. So I'll suggest to clients that for a while, they just kind of mechanically eat every three to four hours. And what starts to happen is they do notice the hunger or they do notice the fullness so much better because sometimes they're just eating without being present all day long and never really being in touch with hunger. So this helps them tune into it, especially you know, if they've been so not tuned into it for so long. Right. So I, I'm going all over the place because I have so many questions, but going back to talking about kind of the traditional model of nutrition that you were taught, uh-huh. are program, graduate programs in nutrition now really incorporating this type of kind of nutritional philosophy in their curriculum? More and more. They, they didn't just do. I will for sure validate that. But I'm hearing more and more schools that are requiring uh, reading intuitive eating as part of their programming. Although I will say I I run a supervision group and I always invite students to come to learn about intuitive eating and and also eating disorders. And some of them are very disturbed because they go to their internships or traineeships. And some of the people that are running them have this old traditional way and very weight centric. And so they're very frustrated and they're kind of sometimes afraid to speak up because they don't want to get a bad grade. But so it's, it's a mix. And we're hoping that over time, there's more and more understanding about the healing process of intuitive eating and how actually dangerous it is to use the old way of thinking. It just doesn't work. Right. So the other question is, you know, how did you move into this? How did this capture you? And, you know, this has become your life work. So what was the process? When I did my traineeship, I was working with, uh, in a clinic through Children's Hospital, working with developmentally disabled kids. And it was a multidisciplinary approach, which meant I was able to work with every discipline, you know, nursing and speech therapy and occupational therapy and psychiatry and psychology and social work. And I was just bound and determined to have my career working with kids with developmental disabilities. And I had no interest in working with what I will say, if you could see me, quote, unquote, air quotes, weight management or weight control. Because even then, way back then, and that was in the early 80s, I just knew that that was not going to be something I wanted to deal with. I knew it was not a happy area to deal with. Unfortunately, the referrals I was getting were from many uh, physicians who would send a client with you know, some high blood sugar, high blood cholesterol or, or something, and then say, help them lose weight. And I ended up having to enter into that arena. And I wasn't getting very many referrals from the field of developmental disabilities, unfortunately. So I started to do the only thing that I had been taught to do, which is right, as I mentioned, write out a meal plan, nice balanced meals, tell them this is not a diet, but you know, this is, this is kind of the best way to eat. And it was miserable because for a while, clients would be very compliant. You know, here I was the authority figure and they were just going to do whatever they needed to do to please me. But then eventually, 
they would fall off of it. They couldn't do it. And I found myself being very frustrated because I didn't know what to say to them. I didn't know how to help them figure out what to do. And that was the point at which I was very, very interested in psychology, although I had been for a while. And I started reading as much as I could about you know psych- the psychology of eating. It was an era when some of the non-diet people were writing about not dieting. And I started to read that. And the suggestion was, just let somebody eat whatever they want to eat. And my immediate reaction was, oh, I'm a dietitian. How can I tell somebody to eat whatever they want? Because I know that some foods have more nutritional value than others. But what really informed me was the psychology of why that was not going, you know, telling people what to eat was not going to work. And so I was then thinking, okay, I'm going to write a book about this. And I started to put some chapters on the computer and had a lot of thoughts about it. And at the time, my co-author, Evelyn Triboli, was working out of my office. She lives an hour away and she was in LA once a week. And so she was in my office and I saw her one day and she was looking a little bit unhappy. And I said, Evelyn, what's the problem? And she said, oh, I'm so frustrated. I'm trying to write this book with a psychologist and that person doesn't know how to write. And I just jumped right in and I said, I'll write it with you. And she had had some of the similar thoughts and feelings that I had. And so we put them together and created a proposal for the first intuitive eating book, which came out in 1995. So this is a 25th year anniversary with the fourth edition. And it changed everything, not only for my work and her work, but it started to change things for so many other people I knew in the field who were frustrated with doing this work because they were either feeling like they were helping people and then the rebound would come and they weren't helping people. And it was just not very satisfying. So that's how it began. Got it. So maybe this idea of I mean, when you were sent these clients and the referral source said, okay, I need help in in terms of weight management for this patient. Mm -hmm. So the goal is maybe weight management and maybe weight loss, but just through a different strategy, maybe. Well, in the beginning, you know, I didn't have this this way of thinking. I'd had to develop. As I said, I've been doing this 38 years and we're in the 25th anniversary. So it took a while to understand that any time that one is told what to eat is going to elicit a couple of psychological problems. The first one is, well, what to eat, when to eat, how much to eat. The first one is that typically it's very depriving to not be able to eat what you really want to eat. And so eventually people just break the diet because they're so deprived. And while they're you know, deprived, they're not feeling any guilt. And then as soon as they eat something that isn't on the diet, they start to feel guilty and eat more of it and then go back and forth yo-yo dieting between the two extremes. Mm -hmm. So it just meant so much to help them understand that number one, there was nothing wrong with them for being not being able to stay on the diet because deprivation is such a big psychological issue. We want what we don't have. But the other one that I find to be kind of my baby that I like to talk about is the assertion of autonomy. I'm very interested in developmental stages of all humans that we go through and starting at top toddlerhood or babies, you know, are trying to assert their autonomy by, you know, figuring out that they are separate from their moms and that they do want to pick their own toys and like their own foods. And, and their favorite word is no, you know, (laughs) the two-year-old is no. And it goes throughout our entire lives, this need to preserve this very private place within us that can guide us for many things in life. And so at a 
diet does is it invades that private place and tells you what you should do, as I said, you know, how much, when, whatever, what you can't have. And eventually the healthy ego is going to rebel and break the diet. And again, people walk in feeling really bad about themselves that they can't stay on these diets. And I'll say to them, no, you're not a failure at dieting. You're a success in ego development because nobody wants to be told what to do if you have a healthy ego. And you're the kind of person that's probably not going to be, you know, taken into a cult. However, diet culture seems to be brainwashing most people. So, you know, this is the part of it that's so important, but I'm also very, very focused on social justice and how much oppression there is in the world in so many ways. And at this moment in time, so, so many of us are awakened to various forms of oppression. Some people don't realize that weight stigma is a very powerful and traumatic oppression for people. So the idea of trying to help someone lose weight, even if the doctor is saying, get this person to lose weight, because the medical industry often, or the medical model is often about weight loss is going to fix everything without understanding the damage that weight stigma can do to a person. So my work is about changing weight bias, helping people not hold that so that others are stigmatized by it. Right. I think I got so, off of your question, but <laughs> well, I just—I mean, the question of—I mean, as a physician, I mean, you—I ha- maybe uh-huh. I have a patient who really does need to lose weight for health reasons, right? They're diabetic. Hey, I'm going to stop you right there, Josephine. <laughs> I'm going to stop you right there. That's okay. a misnomer. That is, there's a, a whole, I'm sorry, I interrupted, but it is the medical model that there is that correlation. But remember, it's a correlation. It's not a causation. A person's weight is not what determines their health. It's more that person's behavior, their self-care, what are they doing in their life? So when you see all of these studies that correlate a higher weight with a medical problem, what they're not looking at, they're not going deeply enough to understand how powerful weight stigma is to people who actually don't seek medical care because they're so afraid, afraid of being shamed by the doctor, you know, get on the scale, lose 25 pounds, and they know they can't do that, so they avoid going to the doctor. And some of their medical issues are not uh, found early enough to be treated. Sometimes they are treatable, but sometimes it's, it's a little too late. Or they don't want to go out and move their bodies, you know, like all human beings, we all need to move. And they've been so bullied about their size that they stay in the house and stay sedentary. That's a determinant of health is, you know, movement. It's very important to move our bodies to be healthy. So we really have to look at that obesity myth and the belief out there that, and I have quotes around that. It's the O word in quotes, obesity, because it's a, it's something that makes me very angry because there isn't really proof that that is causative. There is proof, and there are studies that support the fact that weight stigma is much more dangerous to a person's health than their actual body size because of what I was just saying, that weight stigma really affects people traumatically and keeps them from, from feeling good about themselves. It's, it affects their mental health you know, as well. Mm-hmm. So it's something that ha- we're regularly trying to debunk this belief. And there's a program philosophy, I don't know what to call it exactly, called Health at Every Size. And the goal of that is to help people find the best self-care they can, regardless of what size they are, and help them get past all of the things that are keeping them for the barriers that are keeping them from taking good care of themselves and the barriers that keep them thinking that, you know, that are lowering their self-esteem. Intuitive eating, interestingly, which is, as I said, it's a 
weight inclusive, not a weight centric process. There have been over 125 studies to date of intuitive eating. And these studies have found that intuitive eaters have a tremendously higher level of coping skills, of physical and mental health parameters. They have less eating disorders, less disordered eating. And it's just every study, one after another. There's just been two this year that have come out. One was an eight-year longitudinal study looking at a, a, a group of racially diverse young people and looking at their intuitive eating and how being an intuitive eater was, you know, the, the marker of how healthy they were emotionally. And one study after another, I'm not real great on research. My co-author is the one who has it all in her head, but I'm just in awe of how each study comes out supporting intuitive eating mm-hmm. versus weight loss. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. I know I just jumped right in, but I just didn't even, I couldn't, I couldn't no. help I think that's helpful. But I mean, I guess actually we're, we're kind of spending a lot of time talking about kind of weight management from kind of thinking about people, thinking about kind of intuitive eating and kind of on one side of the spectrum of people thinking they've always wanted to lose weight. But what about the other side of the spectrum? I mean, as a psychiatrist, I work a lot with anorexia and bulimia. How does intuitive eating really fit into that paradigm of treatment? That's another very important question, as all of yours are. There is a myth out in the eating disorder treatment world, and I am, by the way, a certified eating disorder RD and supervisor, that, oh, you can't use intuitive eating with treating someone with anorexia because they've lost touch with their hunger and fullness because they're so undernourished. Well, intuitive eating has 10 different principles. And so while one is being re-nourished, because we have to nourish the brain, we have to nourish the body, especially to be able to think and feel. During that period of re-nourishment, we can be working with so many of the other intuitive eating principles, including making peace with food so that all foods are emotionally equivalent. They may not be nutritionally equivalent, but they're emotionally equivalent, meaning you don't feel good about eating broccoli and bad about eating a piece of cake. (laughs) You know, if you have the same emotional reaction to what you're eating and working on respecting the body, working on learning how to speak up when people are trying to tell you what to do in terms of your eating, learning about how to, as I was mentioning earlier, dealing with emotions, learning about how to identify emotions and having the skills to develop an emotional muscle, you know, strengthen one's emotional muscle, learning how to find, you know, help and seek what they need from other people. There's so many aspects of intuitive eating that can be used in day one of treating anorexia. And I have actually in the book, I wrote the chapter on eating disorders and I have a case study in there of one of my clients from many, many years ago who had been hospitalized 11 times in four years for her anorexia between the ages of 19 and 23. She found intuitive eating and it was a much older copy, obviously. And it really resonated with her in terms of this aspect of autonomy. And she called me one day and said, please help me. I have been hospitalized all these times. I refuse to ever go to the hospital again. If I don't get better, I'll just stay in bed for the rest of my life. And she happened to live on the other side of the country. So not these times where we're doing all of this telehealth, but in the days when I typically would want to only see someone in person. But we made an agreement that she would have her medical care every week. She would have a therapist that she was talking to. I would be in touch with her whole treatment team. And she could be working on intuitive eating, except the one thing that would break our contract was that she couldn't say to me, 
well, I wasn't hungry enough to eat everything I needed to eat because I wasn't getting, you know, I was getting full very quickly. And I was helping her understand that when you're in an undernourished place, you're, there's something called gastroparesis where the stomach emptying is slowed down and you tend to be full all the time. And I said, that's not going to go with me. You know, we're talking about what you need to eat to re-nourish yourself and we can work on all the rest of the principles. And if you do feel hunger, wow, that's a, you know, that's a reliable signal. So go ahead and eat. But if you're full all the time, that isn't reliable until you are you know fully nourished and along the way in her treatment she would say oh, i can't wait till i'm an intuitive eater so i can really just trust my body and and know that it's accurate and when she had been quite renourished she tried it for a weekend she wasn't fully there but she just loved the idea of having that autonomy now this is i would say oh this is 15 years ago or so she ended up and i had been in touch with her for many years she ended up maintaining her health she had a child she never went back to her anorexia and it was a result of her feeling the sense of being understood and the autonomy piece so got it <laughs> What about bulimia? How I mean, I I feel like these topics could be their own right. <laughs> curriculum, and I'm trying to do it in a few minutes. But kind of going to the bulimia kind of side of things, how would that fit in within the intuitive? So, so let's model? look at you know what could drive bulimia. Diet culture tells us that we are supposed to look a certain way, be a certain size and shape. Not everybody is that size or shape, and often people go on diets to try to find their way to a, a smaller body, to shrink their bodies. And what happens in the process is they restrict, they restrict. The more, and studies will show you, the more you restrict, the more there's going to be a rebound of overeating. And because they're so terrified of gaining weight, they will find compensatory mechanisms to get rid of the food, whether it's purging, whether it's trying to use laxatives or diuretics, which actually don't get rid of anything, but, or over-exercising, and that becomes bulimia, where they're restricting, and then they're binging, and then they're trying to get rid of what they've eaten. And so really, when you boil that down to the bottom line of that, if they, if we can help them not restrict, if we can help them make peace with all foods and make all foods emotionally equivalent, the risk of their overdoing, you know, of the binging, of the eating excessively is so reduced that it's the first part of helping them not feel this need to have to get rid of the food, the food that's in them. So intuitive eating is just the perfect path for someone with bulimia. And again, uh, as we were talking about before, they're probably not in touch with hunger and fullness because they've either been so undernourished and restricted that they, they're going to rebound with having a larger hunger or they're so used to filling their stomachs beyond that that's what they think is you know, normalized. And so again, you know, sometimes in the beginning, just helping people eat on regular, you know, every few hours to start to get those signals back is really helpful. Okay. And then touching on just binge eating. And I mean, we were kind of talking about that a little bit already, but how does that fit into the model? Well, you know, I think that it's so interesting. I have so many people that come into my office and say, oh, I'm a compulsive overeater. I'm an emotional eater. I'm a binge eater. You know, I can't ever stop eating. Don't tell me I can eat whatever I want. I'll never stop. And what's so fascinating to me is as they embrace intuitive eating and as they start to make peace with all foods and as they stop feeling guilt and shame about their food choices, the majority of what they've called emotional eating or binging is 
dramatically reduced. And yes, of course, we all have emotions and we all sometimes want food to soothe our emotions, or most of us do. But the majority of this binging is gone. And it's been remarkable to see. And then, of course, we continue to work on coping mechanisms to deal with emotions and and dealing with emotions with kindness, you know, and not being judgmental because there's so much judgment in this world. And that self-judgment has to be changed to self-compassion. Got it. Okay. Wow. I feel like we we kind of <laughs> blew through all of those. And I mean, I hope that the, if the listener is interested, they will probably be more than happy to kind of look through your book because I feel like the, the, you really get into all of these things and so much more depth in the book, which is great. I have not finished it all myself, but I really enjoyed what I've read so far. I think that's I'm right. And, and I will suggest, I also wrote a book for teenagers that's called mm-hmm. The Intuitive Eating Workbook for Teens. And people will say, but I'm not a teenager. Why should I read that? And I have found that so many of my adult clients are really drawn to it because it's much more on target, you know, specific. It's, a, it's not as a extensive as the intuitive eating book itself. And it helps them, the exercises in there help them get back to the place when their eating problems began, because so many people find that they're disconnected from their signals as teens, sometimes children as well. And so for some people, that might be the first place to start would, would, would be with the teen book. There's also an intuitive eating workbook for grownups. And uh, that one, after reading the, the book, will we'll have wonderful exercises. And then just in the last stages of writing an intuitive eating journal book, which is called the Intuitive Eating Journal, Trust Your Inner Voice, Not Diet Culture. And that'll be out next mm-hmm. year. And that will have lots of space for writing about this. But in the meantime, yes, just the book itself is probably going to explain this all in depth. Great. And I feel like I need to say one more thing because it just came to my mind in terms of the teen book that you wrote. I'm sure a lot of parents of teens are, are maybe, maybe listening to this. Do parents ever send their adolescents to you just to kind of talk a little bit about their eating habits and how they're thinking about intuitive eating, kind of learn just some kind of basic skills? Do you ever do yeah. that? Sure, of course. I work with a lot of adolescents. I love that age range. And I really speak to their need to individuate and and find their autonomy. And so intuitive eating very much appeals to them. And what I will say about parents sending them there, sometimes they find me on their own, which is very interesting. Mm -hmm. What I have found with probably the majority of my clients with eating disorders and teens I work with, there is a weight-centric model going on in the house. There is a lot of parental comments about their own bodies. You know, oh, I've got to lose that weight. I never lost it after having the baby or a parent weighing themselves on a regular basis. And the message to the teen is, you're not okay if you're not fitting this, you know, certain ideal weight. And so I do work with parents to help them change their narrative and to change the way they're talking to their kids about these things. And the teens just love it. I mean, they're the most receptive to intuitive eating. So. Okay. Good to know. Okay. On the podcast description, I'm going to definitely include the link to your book and also to your website. And I'll also ask you if there's other links that you think would be helpful for the listener. We'll add those as well. 
Sure. And there's two websites. There's my own personal one where I have a lot of personal information on there. Well, not too personal, but, you know, some things I've written and things I've said and links to some podcasts and things and my words of wisdom. And then there's the intuitive eating website, which is a little more technical. And it's got a list of all the studies that have been done and a way to find certified intuitive eating counselors. So there's both of those. I'm kind of on Instagram. (laughs) So I'm at Elise Resch on Instagram. And I just basically, you know, I'll post a picture of my eating spaghetti. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not a big social media person, but I'm also on, you know, on, on Facebook and Twitter as well. Great. All right. Well, I really appreciate your time and educating us about this topic. Is there anything that you feel like we didn't go over that you think would be really helpful to mention before we say goodbye? Well, yeah, I, I think there's one very important piece and one of the fears that most people have in, allowing themselves to, you know, jump into these murky waters of intuitive eating because it's so, you know, different for them is this idea of if you let me eat whatever I want, I'll never stop. And there's this concept called habituation, which basically means the greater the stimulus, the less the response. And so what that means is the more you have of something, the less exciting it is, the less forbidden it is, the less exciting it is. And so when you take off the judgment about foods and the restriction of foods and really feel deeply inside that you can eat whatever it is that you want for the rest of your life, not, oh, I'll just try this into of eating thing for a short time and go back to the next diet, what ends up happening is food just takes its place in a very moderate way. Whatever that food is, whatever foods that have been restricted or people have been binging, they find it to be miraculous. One of my clients just said, actually, I've only seen her twice. She said, this is miraculous. This is the first time in my life, and she's about 50, I guess, the first time in my life that I have ever felt that I wasn't out of control with eating. So I think this habituation, which is so well described in all of the books, is the comforting piece when people are afraid that if they're allowed to eat whatever they want, they'll never stop. Right. Okay. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> Any parting last phrases? Yes. Yes. You have a right to enjoy food. You have a right to have satisfaction in eating. You have a right to tune into your own internal wisdom. Let go of all of that external, painful information that comes to you that only makes you feel bad. So that's, I would leave it with yeah. that. All right. Well, thank you. Good messages. I appreciate it. You're welcome. All right. Be well. Bye. Thanks. This has been Mind Stories. With remote appointments in California and offices in downtown Los Angeles, Santa Monica, Hermosa Beach, Marina Del Rey, and Echo Park, Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, mood and anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more to help you get back to your true self. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com. Thank you for listening to Mind Stories, and don't forget to subscribe.